Let's uh, start again this morning in John chapter 14. We've been uh, teaching a series for a number of weeks on the uh, the name of Jesus. And um, really, in, in my thinking, we're just getting started. John uh, was one of the 12, one of the ones closest to Jesus. And uh, his was the last of the Gospels that was written. John writes his gospel about 60 years after Jesus has been raised from the dead, 60 or so years after Jesus has been raised from the dead. The other three gospels are out there. They're widely circulated. The other uh, epistles, the other letters to the church are out there. Um, so John knows what has been said about Jesus' ministry and what has not. And, uh, and it's almost like he comes back after the fact and fills in the blanks for us. Um, he tells us things. He relates certain stories and certain events um, that, uh, that the others do as well, the other gospel writers do as well for a point of reference. But then he adds things that, that uh, some of the other gospel writers do not. And, uh, and he gives us more information about the last night that Jesus was with the twelve, uh, well, the eleven. Judas has already gone out to betray him at this point that uh, John writes these things, uh, meaning the, the 14th, 15th, and 16th chapters where he identifies the events of the last night Jesus was with them. But he gives, them more, he gives more information about that than any of the other gospel writers, even though Matthew was there too. And, uh, and consequently, uh, this has special significance to me, and I think it should have special significance to the church because it's as if um, John is at the end of his life. He's probably in his 90s at the time that he writes these, uh, these words. And he's at the end of his life having lived as a Christian from the beginning of the church, some 60 years, uh, as, a, as a Christian, he's seen things that have happened. He's seen the, the temple of Jerusalem been destroyed in 70 AD. He's seen how the church has been persecuted. He's seen how the church has grown. And he comes back with, um, with what I can uh, only assume or uh, conclude is what he believes is the most important information to tell us before he goes off of the scene. I don't know how long that he knows he's going to live or, or anything like that. But when you start getting in your 90s, you've you got to be at least thinking about the end of the road. And so uh, he gives us some information about Jesus um, that uh, I, I don't, I, I, I'm sorry if I keep saying the same thing over and over again. Um, but I don't know any, any better way to say it. It's like he, he comes up with the best and the most important things to, to tell us before he goes. Because he's the last one that is alive. Of the original 12. And so he says in John chapter 14. We'll start reading in, uh, in verse 11. Jesus speaking to the disciples said. Uh, well verse 10. Believest thou not that I am in the Father. And the Father in me. I want you to, to, um, uh, to realize. If you haven't been with us. We talked about this a little bit more in depth. Uh, Jesus seems to be focusing. In, uh, in John's remembrance. Jesus seems to be focusing a lot on. The fact that they did not believe. What he wanted them to believe. Now, certainly they believe that he's a miracle worker. Certainly they believe that he's sent from God because they've been following him for three years. But they're still not convinced that he's the Messiah. And they have no clue what he's talking about when he's talking about going to the Father and coming back again and stuff like that. They just didn't know. Now, folks, you need to understand something. Forgive me for interrupting myself. But, um, but there's some things you need to know. And that is, there is very little heaven in Ju Judaism. Very, very little. There's very little acknowledgement of uh, the Messiah going to the cross, the Messiah being raised from the dead. Those were foreign concepts. They understood sacrifice because they understood the, the Day of Atonement, meaning the Jews. 
But they didn't understand anything about the resurrection. So when Jesus is talking about going to the Father, they're thinking, well, what's that about? You'll remember perhaps the number of times that uh, different people, sometimes even his own disciples, would ask him, are you going to establish the kingdom now? Are you going to restore the kingdom to, to, to uh, Israel? In other words, they're thinking about the kingdom of God as being delivering us from the Romans, setting us free so that we can have political freedom, so that we can have uh, religious liberty, so that we're not oppressed by some other people in some other armies. That's the only freedom that they're interested in. That's the only freedom that they understood. Because the law of Moses is a, a codification of the covenant that God made with Abraham. And the covenant God made with Abraham even though it was an eternal covenant, was not a spiritual covenant in the eyes of the Jews. It was about what God would do for you here on the earth. And folks, I would submit to you, that's why the Jews are real good here on the earth. That's why they're real good with the blessings of God here on the earth. That was ingrained in them. But the idea of the resurrection, the idea of a spiritual kingdom, that's totally foreign to them. So when Jesus is talking about who he is, when he's talking about going to the Father, he wants them to understand what we now take for granted. That he's going to the cross, he's going to be buried for three days, he's going to be raised from the dead. Now granted, it's easier for us to understand that looking back than it would have been if we had been in their shoes. I mean the idea of somebody going to the cross and and dying and then three days later being raised from the dead. Okay, well that's never happened before, so really? I can understand how some of their, uh, their thinking might have been skewed. I can really relate to some of their unbelief, even though Jesus upbraided them for their hardness of heart. So when Jesus is talking about believing in him, he's talking about believing what we know of as the resurrection, about what we know of as Jesus becoming the head of the church, about Jesus becoming the head of the spiritual kingdom of God. Remember, Jesus said that the kingdom of God is within you. Boy, the Jews didn't understand that. What do you mean within me? They were, they were interested in the money that, that the blessing of Abraham provided for them. They were interested in the, the other parts of the blessing that God made to Abraham when he said, if you follow me, then I'll do these things for you. That's all they related to. And Jesus is having a hard time getting them to look past natural things to spiritual things. Doesn't sound like people have changed much over the years, have they? So he said, believest thou not, believest thou not that I'm in the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak unto you, I speak not of myself, but the Father that dwelleth in me, he doeth the works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me or else believe me for the very work's sake. In other words, he's saying, you know that I'm not doing these works on my own. Don't believe me because you think I'm doing something. Believe me because the words that I'm speaking to you, I'm speaking because God gives them to me to say. The works that I'm doing, I'm not doing of myself. He's identifying with man. The Bible says in Philippians chapter 2 that he laid aside his heavenly power and glory. He's not operating on the earth as the son of God. He's not operating on the earth as the, uh, the power source of God himself. He's laid all that aside and God has anointed him with the Holy Ghost and given him, delegated to him authority here on the earth for a specific time for a specific purpose. But it's not the power he had as the creator of the worlds. So he said, believe me because of the words or believe me because of the works. Verily, verily, I say unto you, verse 12, he that believeth on me. We've talked about that being the same thing as he believing in he that believeth in my name. Literally, in, in modern day vernacular, we'd say he that is saved. Because you can't get saved without believing in the name. See, I think one thing we've done when it comes to the name of Jesus, as well as some other things, other areas as well. We've made faith. We've made the idea of believing. People read this verse, he that believeth on me, and we think, oh, if only I believed. Well, aren't you saved? 
See, we've identified believing on him as being somewhere that we're not. When all the time it's somewhere where you already are. And the devil has used that lack of knowledge, that ignorance of the truth. From keeping us from doing the things that Jesus said we'd do. So he said, verily I say unto you, he that believeth in me, or believeth on me, or believeth in my name, he that is saved receives me as Lord and Savior. We could say it that way. The works that I do shall he do also, and greater works than these shall he do, because I go unto my Father. And whatsoever you shall ask, the word ask is the word call for, require, demand. So I'm going to use the word demand. Now, I use that word over and over again because I know it receives and runs into resistance. Because anytime you use the word demand related to the things of God, some people get the idea that you're being arrogant and you've got the wrong attitude and stuff like that. But folks, demand is a legal term. It's not an attitude term. It's not a word that has anything to do with attitude. It's a word that has to do with legal relationship. For example, when you write a check, you're putting a demand on your bank to pay according to what you direct the money to be sent to. You're placing a demand on funds that you have on deposit. Now, how are you able to do that? Because you have a contract with the bank. When you opened your checking account, you signed some kind of paper. Whether electronically or in person. You signed some kind of paper. You gave your assent to entering into this relationship with the bank where they said, you give us your money, we'll hold on to it, and then when you send a check... To somebody and they present it to the bank. We'll pay it according to, a, to how you wrote the check. That's a demand on your money. It's your money. Now do you have a bad attitude when you write a check? You might not be happy with the amount you're writing. Or who you're writing it to. <laughs> but attitude doesn't have anything to do with it does it? I'm sure the IRS gets gets checks every year that people had bad attitudes when they wrote them. But right on the other hand, some people may have sent checks happy because they thought they were going to have to pay more. But the demand is the same on the bank. So demand is a legal term. It's not an uh, an, an attitude term. So I'm going to use the word demand with the understanding that it's like the demand you place on your checking account when you write a check. Okay? So Jesus said, believe me for the words or the work's sake. He that believeth on me, he that's saved, accepts me as Lord and Savior. The works that I do shall he do also, again, verse 12, and greater works than these shall he do because I go unto my Father. He's still trying to get them to understand he's going away. They don't want to hear that. Verse 13, and whatsoever you shall demand in my name, that will I do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. Please notice Jesus said the name puts me to work. Now if we came up with this idea. I could understand people with people's criticism about arrogance. and, and, And bad attitudes and stuff like that. But Jesus said this is the way I want it to work. I want you to use my name. Whatsoever you shall demand in my name. That's what I'll do. It sounds like Jesus is creating a partnership. Here's how this partnership is going to work. Here's how this legal relationship with us is going to work. We know it's because of the love of God. But it creates a legal relationship. And here's how it's going to work. You use my name. You decide whatever the name is to be used for. You place a demand on the name. As long as the name, the use of the name glorifies the Father, I'm good with that. I'll do whatever you place a demand on. In other words, I'll make good whatever check you write. 
spiritually. Now, how big of checks do you write? What kind of checks do you write? Some of us have, in our experience, had the unfortunate and unhappy experience of bouncing checks. But we don't like to do that, do we? And usually it happens because somebody doesn't know or they forgot to write down another check or whatever their bank balance has uh, turned out to be less than what they thought it was going to be. Some people do it on purpose, trying trying to cheat people and so forth. But that's not what I'm talking about. But it all comes down to this. The only reason we ever bounce a check is because we don't know what we've got on deposit. Right? You know why the church bounces checks? I'm not talking about our church. I'm talking about spiritual application. You know why Christians bounce checks spiritually? Because they don't know what's on deposit. See, the name of Jesus and the demand that you place on the name of Jesus is only as good as the deposit in the bank of heaven. Now, some people think the deposit on the bank of heaven is forgiveness of sins. Not even redemption. Just forgiveness of sins. Just God looking the other way because you sinned. And if that's as much as the deposit, uh, much of a deposit as they think they have, then they'll never use the name of Jesus for anything else. Or they might throw it up in prayer saying, oh, God, I really need help in the name of Jesus. But they don't expect any results because they don't know what's on deposit. But Jesus is very simply saying, here's how this relationship is going to work. Now, please notice, folks. John is writing this 60 years after Jesus has been raised from the dead. He's seen the church for 60 years. He's seen all the stuff Jesus prophesied about that generation come to pass. He knows his time is coming to an end. He can't live forever. But he sure outlived everybody else in the group. And so he gives us the most important words. And those words are relative to and concerning the use of the name of Jesus. John tells us more in the 14th, 15th, and 16th chapters of the use of the name of Jesus than any of the other gospel writers put together. Why? Because he knows we need to know. Now let me stop right there and remind you of something. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 16 where Jesus goes to Caesarea Philippi? It's a place where there's all kinds of uh, idol worship locations and and that kind of stuff it's still that way today the ruins are still there and you can see where they are offering sacrifices and doing stuff to other false gods and and lots of signs identifying the locations very easy to see and identify what was going on jesus goes to that place and he said who do men say that i am and the disciples answered him and said well some say that you're elijah he's been dead for hundreds of years others say you're jeremiah he's been dead hundreds of years too or one of the other prophets Now, it's interesting to me that people are willing to believe something that's totally off the wall. Like the returning from the dead of some Old Testament prophet, rather than to believe that Jesus was who he said that he was. And then Jesus turned around and he said, well, who do you say I am? Do you agree with these other folks? Who do you say I am? And Peter answered and said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus said, blessed art thou, Simon of Arjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this unto you, but my Father which lives in heaven. Now, how did Peter get divine revelation on who Jesus was? Because the Holy Ghost must have spoken it to his heart, must have witnessed to his heart in some way or another. Peter accepted that what these people think about Jeremiah or Elijah or some other dead prophet raised to life is not true. What is true is what Jesus said, and he was sent from the Father. He's the Messiah. 
Jesus said, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood is not revealed this unto you, but my Father which uh, liveth in heaven. And he said, And upon this rock, now what rock is he talking about? Some people have made a, um, a, a connection to Peter's name. And, you know, thou art Peter, and upon this rock. He's not talking about, if, if Peter is the rock of the church, if Peter is the foundation of the church, we are in a world of trouble. Because Peter violated some of, the pre- some of his own preaching, according to some of the things we have recorded in the book of Acts. Now, he's not saying Peter's the foundation. He's saying the knowledge that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's the foundation of the church. If that weren't the case, then we could get saved in the name of Peter. But you can't. We're only saved by the name of Jesus. So he said, and upon this rock, I will build my church. I will build my church. And then he goes further in the next verse. And he says, and I will give unto you the keys of the kingdom. And whatsoever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever you loose on earth shall be loosed on heaven. In other words, he's saying, here's the foundation of the church. The foundation of the church is knowing that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And he said, immediately, I'm going to give you stuff as a part of the church. And the stuff that I'm going to give you is the keys to the kingdom. And those keys to the kingdom will provide authority for you. So whatever you refuse or prohibit here on the earth, God will back you up. Whatever you allow here on the earth, God will back you up on that too. Always starts from here. never starts from heaven. It always starts from here. Because the authority is given to man on the earth, not in heaven. Jesus said when he was raised from the dead, all authority is given unto me. All power, literally authority, is given unto me in heaven and earth. Then he sent us into the earth. In other words, he'll take care of things in heaven. We take care of things here on the earth. He delegated his authority. So, folks, we could say that the things that John tells us after the fact, what I consider to be the most important things that the church needs to know, in addition to the things that uh, have already been revealed through the Gospels and the ministry of Jesus, are church building instructions. And those keys to the kingdom must be, since it's what John emphasizes, must be the use of the name of Jesus. Because it's only through the name of Jesus that we have authority to bind or loose here on the earth and for heaven to back us up. What else could it be? So when Jesus says here in John chapter 14, in verse 13, and whatsoever you shall demand in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son, he's saying, here's the key. Here's the key. He goes on in the next verse. If you shall demand anything in my name, I will do it. It's almost like he has to say it again because the first time would have gone past their heads or over their heads. Whatsoever you shall demand in my name, that shall I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Now, pause. If you demand anything in my name, I'll do it. Now, let me ask you a question. Whose responsibility is it to put the demand on or to make the demand? Notice Jesus did not say whatever I impress upon you to demand. Notice he did not say whatever special anointing comes upon you to demand in my name. See, we've attached all these ideas. In my opinion, in an attempt to make an excuse for why it's not working. E.W. Kenyon wrote in his book, The Wonderful Name of Jesus. He said, it's like the modern day church is playing a game of bluff. Where every week we come and try to encourage one another to do the very things that we're not doing ourselves.
Skip down with me to chapter 15, verse 7. Jesus said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall demand what you will. Same word, demand. Translated ask in the King James was the same word, call for, require, demand. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall demand what you will and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, so shall you be my disciples. Now, books have been written about abiding in him and the word abiding in you. What does that mean? Folks, Jesus is not being deep with these guys. He knew that if he was deep with these guys, they wouldn't get it. John writes in common language. He's not being deep either. Literally, he's saying, if you maintain your relationship with me through walking in faith. That's what abiding in him and the words abiding in you mean. We walk by faith and not by sight. If you're in relationship with me through walking in faith, you shall ask what you will. You shall make a demand according to your will, and it shall be done unto you. Herein, by your prayers being answered, by your use of the name of Jesus being rewarded, getting results. Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. In other words, folks, and you can't say it any simpler than this. In other words, Jesus is saying God wants it to work this way. God wants you to get results through the use of the name of Jesus. Now, again, I think that's one thing that the modern-day church has done. We've tried to make excuses. Well, maybe it's not the will of God. Give me a break. How can any intelligent person conclude that when you see what Jesus is really saying? He's saying, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. Now, folks, we've got to recognize right up front that abiding in him and walking by faith, walking according to the word, in other words, is going to do away with a lot of the off-the-wall stuff that people are asking for and want. Because the Word of God lived is the Word of God revealed. So a lot of selfish stuff is going to be done away with because the Word of God is abiding in you. Somebody's walking by faith. But a lot of stuff that people would say is selfish isn't selfish. A lot of stuff that the devil tells you is selfish is not selfish. God didn't seem to think it was selfish when he told Abraham he'd make him rich. Why didn't Abraham, as a, as a humble servant of God, why didn't he say, oh, no, I can't accept that, Father. Just give me enough to feed my family. No, that's just stupidity. When God says, I want you to be rich, God wants you to be rich. And God made Abraham rich. He was very rich in silver and cattle and gold. God doesn't have a problem with that. Now, Church people have problems with that. But God doesn't. So a lot of things that that the devil will tell you is selfish isn't selfish. I don't know about you, but I want to be rich. Let me qualify that. I am rich. But I want to be richer. Now, why do you want to be richer, Pastor Mike? Do you want to just buy stuff for you? No, I've got pretty much everything I need. I want to be richer so I can do more for the kingdom of God. Do you think God has a problem with that? Why would he? Now God's sitting in heaven and saying, No, Mike, not going to give you any more. I'm going to leave it in the hands of the gamblers. (laughs) I want to make sure that the criminals have it, the pornographers. Let them make all the money, not you Christians. See what a stupid idea the church has developed. Folks, I don't know if you know this or not, but the Bible says God made the earth and the fullness thereof. Who do you think he made it for if not his children? There's a lot of, the, there's a lot of God's money in the hands of the world that God's going to turn around. If he can find people that are willing. 
he can find people that will use it in the right way. So he said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall demand what you will and it shall be done unto you. Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, so shall you be my disciples. Please notice he's saying disciples get results in the name of Jesus. Now he did not say, so shall you be my children. Because there's a lot of children, there's a lot of people in the family of God that don't get results in the name of Jesus. But disciples meaning those who live by faith, those who live according to the word, those that accept the word of God as the guidelines for their lives, those are the ones that get results in the name of Jesus. Verse 16, You have not chosen me, but I have chosen you, and have ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit. Now, what kind of fruit is he talking about? Well, it's got to be the same fruit he was referring to in verses 7 and 8. Fruit as a result of the use of the name of Jesus. Jesus already said, whatever you demand in my name, that will I do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. So Jesus isn't concerned about us bearing fruit. He isn't concerned about uh, us bearing too much fruit and getting big-headed about it because that fruit glorifies the Father. So he said, you've not chosen me, but I've chosen you and ordained you that you should go and bring forth fruit, get results in the name of Jesus. And that your fruit should remain, not just temporary fruit, but lasting fruit. And whatsoever you shall demand of the Father in my name, he will give it you. Now, he's getting God the Father involved in this. Not only will I do whatever you demand in my name, Jesus said, but you use my name and the Father's in on this too. It's not us ganging up together and working against his will. It's us working according to his will. Chapter 16. Verse 23, and in that day you shall ask me nothing. This word ask is a different word. It's the word translated pray in most cases. So literally, he's saying, and in that day, the day of the resurrection, the day of the church, the day you're living in and I am, our day, and in that day you shall pray to me about nothing. But whatever you demand of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. And in that day, the day we live in, we'll pray to Jesus about nothing. But verily, verily, he said, whatever we demand of the Father in his name, the Father will give it to us. Hitherto, up till now, you have demanded nothing in my name. He didn't say they haven't used the name. He said they haven't made a demand in the name of Jesus like it will be in the day of the church age, after the resurrection. The use of the name of Jesus was different before the resurrection than it was after. Why? Because Jesus didn't have the same authority before as he had after. When Jesus appeared after his resurrection and says, all authority is given unto me in heaven and earth, that's got to be something new. He had some authority here on the earth. He didn't have any authority in heaven because he had laid that aside. But when the Bible says when Jesus was raised from the dead and God gave him a name that's above every name, that's when Jesus said, now all authority is given unto me in heaven and earth. Now, folks, I kind of like the power in the name that he had before he went to the cross. That seemed to be sufficient. He healed every manner of sickness and every manner of disease among the people. He cast out devils. He raised the dead. He multiplied loaves and fishes. He walked on water. It didn't seem to be any shortage of power there, does it? But when he shows up after his resurrection and he says, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Don't look at it from our standpoint. Look at it from his 
he shows up and says, all power is given to me in heaven and earth. He knows he's got something he didn't have before. He knows. Now I've got not only the same glory I had with the Father, but greater glory. So I've got authority in heaven that I'd laid aside. Even greater authority in heaven than I had before. I've got greater authority here on the earth. Why? Because he has the keys of hell and death. He didn't have that when he was here. First thing he says to John in Revelation chapter 1. Jesus appears. He's got eyes of of fire and his hair is like wool, white wool. He's so bright you can't hardly look at him. John must be thinking back to the day on the mountain of transfiguration. John falls at his feet and Jesus said, I am he that was dead, but I am alive and liveth forevermore. And behold, I have the keys of hell and death. Jesus still seems to be into that. I've got the keys to hell and death. What does that mean? All authority in heaven and earth. Amen. So in that day, the day following the resurrection, you shall pray to me about nothing. Verily, verily, I say unto you, whatsoever you shall demand of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Up till now you have demanded nothing in my name. Demand, and you shall receive, that your joy may be full. Folks, I would submit to you, if your joy is not full in any area of life, there's something missing regarding the use of the name of Jesus. These things I have spoken to you, verse 25, in Proverbs, but the time comes when I shall no more speak unto you in Proverbs, but I shall show you plainly of the Father. At that day, the day that they see plainly. Why couldn't they see plainly? Because they're spiritually dead. They're only going to be able to see plainly after the resurrection. Then it's going to come to life. Then it's going to say, they're going to realize, oh, wow, now that we're born again, now that we've seen Jesus and believed on him and been made new creatures, now we understand about this kingdom of God within that he talked about. That we didn't understand before. That's what he's speaking of. At that day you shall demand in my name. I say not unto you that I will pray. Here's the word. For the same word translated ask. In verse 23. And in that day you shall ask me nothing. He's saying and I won't pray the father for you. For the father himself loves you. Because you've loved me. And have believed that I've come out from God. So the most important information, what I consider to be the most important information that John makes sure to fill in the blanks to leave the church before he goes off the scene. He knows that the Bible's uh, going to be written by the uh, written upon or the church is going to be built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. He's the last one alive. He's the last one that can write to us. And so he's impressed by the, by the Holy Spirit to tell us information that the other writers don't spell out as clearly. And what information does he give us? He gives us church-building information about the use of the name of Jesus. Now turn with me to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, you know the story about how on the day of Pentecost, the Holy Ghost is poured out. Peter begins to preach as the crowd comes together and some people have different ideas. Some people think they're drunk, which means they must have been acting kind of funny. Peter's response is, these men aren't drunk, it's too early. I'm not sure if that fits your doctrine or not, but that's what he said. He didn't say these men aren't drunk, we don't drink. He said, it's it's too early. And 
And then he begins to preach about what Joel prophesied about the, the Holy Ghost being poured out upon all flesh. Verse 21, part of his preaching was from the Old Testament. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. He tells about Jesus. They're pricked in their hearts. Verse 37, and said unto Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Then said Peter unto them, verse 38, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. So he's talking about not only being saved in the name of Jesus but being filled with the Spirit with the evidence of speaking in other tongues. Like they had just been filled in the name of Jesus too. Chapter 3. Peter and John go to the temple at the hour of prayer. And a certain man laid, uh, lame from his mother's womb was carried whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple. Which is called beautiful to ask alms of them that entered into the temple. Who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked an alms. And Peter, fastening his eyes upon him with John, said, Look on us. And he gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something of them, that something meaning money. Then Peter said, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Now, folks, this is the first recorded instance of the use of the name of Jesus by the early church according to what John said Jesus told them to do. Now we know that there were other things. For example, if you skip back with me to chapter 2 verse, 30, verse 42, it says they, the 3,000 people that got saved on the day of Pentecost continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and breaking of bread and prayers. And fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. Well, how are they doing those signs and wonders before? Had to be in the name of Jesus. Right? So there were other uses of the name of Jesus that aren't recorded. They're just kind of lumped up and said, lumped together in chapter 2 and said, and, and many signs and wonders were done. But they had to be done in the name of Jesus. Peter's not doing them because he's so sharp. Right? But here's what the Holy Ghost saw fit to show us as the use of the name of Jesus in the world. Not in the church, but in the world. The church reaching out to the world. Peter said... In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up. And immediately his feet and his ankle bones received strength. And he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered with them into the temple, walking and leaping and praising God. Everybody's amazed by this. They're wondering what's happening. Verse 12, when Peter saw it, he answered unto the people, you men of Israel, why marvel ye at this or why look ye so earnestly on us? As though by our own power or our own holiness we had made this man to walk. Now, folks, I want you to understand something. The only possible explanation I can come up with with why Peter is, is um, well, shall we say surprised that everybody is marveling at this so much is because they've already been doing signs and wonders in the name of Jesus among the church. Maybe Peter assumes that everybody's heard, but they haven't. Maybe that's the reason he says, wait a minute, why are you thinking this is us? Because in his mind, in his thinking, in his experience, up to this point in time, other signs and wonders have been done. Fear came upon other people. The church has grown by leaps and, leaps and bounds up to this point already, too. And he, may, he must be surprised that anybody would think that it is something special that he and John have. Now, folks, again, this is exactly what the modern-day church says about the apostles. The modern-day church, for the most part, says, well, yeah, the apostles had that power. They were apostles. But when the last apostle died, all that did away, was done away with. That's not what Peter says. And wouldn't the apostles know? I mean, if anybody's going to know, shouldn't it be them? 
And notice Peter says, don't look on us, or why are you looking on us, as if by our own power, meaning they didn't have special power, or our own holiness, meaning they didn't have a special place with God. We have made this man to walk. It's not our power. It's not our holiness. It's not some special power the apostles have. It's not some special place with God that the apostles have. Well, if it's not your power or your special place with God, Peter, what is it? The God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. This is verse 13. The God of our fathers has glorified his son Jesus. Well, isn't that what, the, what Jesus said would happen when the name of Jesus was used? When his name was used? The father would be glorified in the son? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has glorified his son Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and desired a murderer to be granted unto you. And kill the prince of life whom God has raised from the dead, whereof we are witnesses. So what does he tell them? In a couple of short sentences, he says, Jesus, who you crucified, God's raised from the dead. God has glorified him through this great mighty miracle. Verse 16, and his name, and his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yea, the faith which is by him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Now, they're, they're called on the carpet. 5,000 people get saved as a result of his preaching. So now we know that the church is uh, uh, 8,000 plus uh, the 120 that they started with, plus the number of people, however many people it was that uh, is uh, uh, identified by the Lord added daily to the church, such as should be saved. So the church is at least 8,120 plus people. Don't know how many more to add to that, but it's a pretty big group. So they're called on the carpet by the religious leaders, the same group that, that crucified Jesus. Some of the, the players are different, but they're the same office holders and so forth. They're called on the carpet, and they're questioned about the, the healing of this man at the beautiful gate of the temple. Verse 7, and when they had set him in the midst, they asked, by what power or by what name have you done this? Notice the, the emphasis on the name. By what power or by what name have you done this? In other words, they're looking at Peter and John and saying, well, we see your men just like us. You can't do this on your own, so where did you get this ability to do it? Or whose name did you use to enable you to do this? And remember, Jesus has just been dead now for a, uh, a couple of months, maybe less. So the idea of people being healed is not a new concept. But they want to know, wait a minute, we thought we got rid of the healing, the, the miracle worker. We thought we got rid of the one that was healing the sick. How are you doing this? Then Peter filled with the Holy Ghost. That means the Holy Ghost came on him to give him the words to say. He was filled in chapter 2 and spoke with other tongues. But now the Holy Ghost is coming upon him to give him the words to answer. Then Peter filled with the Holy Ghost said unto them, You rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day be examined of the good deed done to the impotent man, by what means he is made whole, be it known unto you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead. Get a gospel message in there. Jesus died and now he's alive. Didn't have to be some big sermon. He hits them short and sweet. You killed him, God raised him up. Even by him does this man stand here before you whole. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Notice the emphasis that they place on the name. 
Notice they do not say, well, you know, a little over three years ago, there was this guy that, that came to us while we were fishing. And he told us that he wanted us to let, us, let him use our boat. And, and, and we did, and, and he even rewarded us for that. He caused us to have a great catch of fish. But after that, we started walking with him. We start, none of this, none of this history, none of this, here's what we knew from before. None of this, well, you remember that time? Nothing. You crucified Jesus. God raised him from the dead. And his name, through faith in his name, has made him strong. Not only that, but there's no other name under heaven whereby men may be saved. Now, please notice that Peter equates the name of Jesus for healing equally with salvation. Now, folks, we could go through the whole book of Acts. If we had time, we would. We could go through the whole book of Acts and see the name of Jesus being used time and time and time again. And no intelligent person could deny the fact, fact, not idea, not theory, not teaching, fact, that the name of Jesus healed the sick, performed miracles, other miracles, and caused people to be born again. It was the name of Jesus. Peter even goes so far as to say the name even by him, to equate Jesus with his name. Boy, if that, if that truth ever dawns on us, we've got it. I mean, we've got it not then. If we would ever understand that the name of Jesus equals Jesus. If we would ever understand that the name of Jesus is not some good luck charm phrase. But that when we invoke the name of Jesus, we're identifying the new covenant that that we've entered into. The new creation that we've been made. If we would ever understand that, then the idea of getting results in the name of Jesus would become as common to us as breathing oxygen. But see, we've got other things in our mind. We've got in our mind, well, do we really believe? Well, are you really saved? Did you really believe to get saved? Oh, yeah, but that was easy. Guess what? You were saved in the name of Jesus. Therefore, we have to conclude That if those that say that it's not for us today, the name of Jesus doesn't do the same thing for us today, then we have to conclude that the name of Jesus has diminished since the early days of the church. There's no other conclusion we can draw. Because in the early days of the church, the name of Jesus both saved and healed. But if that's not so today, if it's only salvation, forgiveness of sin that's available for us today, then we have to conclude that the name of Jesus is different than it used to be. Now, if you follow that line of reasoning, that means God has gotten weaker. Heaven has decreased and the devil has gotten stronger. That's not what the Bible says. So what are they going to do? What, are the, what is the council going to do? And please understand the council is a representation of religion. It's a representation of the devil's work on the earth. So how now is the devil going to stop this miracle work in the name of Jesus. Verse 17. Well, verse 16. The council said, what shall we do to these men? For that indeed a notable miracle has been done by them, is manifest to all them that dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But that it spread no further among the people. Let us straightly threaten them that they speak henceforth to no man in this name. Please notice what they did not do. They did not say, 
You are forbidden to come back to Jerusalem. You are exiled to some other place. You cannot stay here. They don't care if they stay there as long as they don't use the name of Jesus. Verse 18, and they called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. Notice the devil's approach. The devil's approach is not to, not to refuse the church to allow, uh, refuse, refuse their, their right to be in existence, not to, to force them out of Jerusalem. That comes later during the persecution, wave, different waves of persecution. But his first attack is, his first plan and it still works the same way today is, well, go ahead and have your little church groups and do whatever you want. Just don't talk about the name of Jesus. Don't speak at all or teach in the name of Jesus. In other words, teach other stuff if you want to. Teach resurrection. We don't care about teaching resurrection. Teach about forgiveness of sins. We don't care about that. But don't speak or teach in the name of Jesus. And folks, I would submit to you, that the devil has done a better job than the church has done. The devil has done a better job against the church than the church has done holding fast to the name of Jesus. Every intelligent reader of the New Testament would have to conclude that the name of Jesus held a much different, much greater, much more prominent place in the early days of the church than it has in the modern days of the church. Why would that be? My opinion, you judge it for yourself. I believe the church listened to the threats of the devil not to speak or teach anymore in the name of Jesus. So what do they do? Well, being let go, verse 23, they went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and they prayed that God would give them boldness. Verse 29, And now, Lord, behold their threatenings and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word by stretching forth your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of the holy child Jesus. So what's their approach? Their approach after being threatened not to preach or teach anymore in the name of Jesus, their approach is give us boldness and pour it on. Do more and more and more in the name of Jesus. Notice boldness comes through the, the results, the effective use of the name of Jesus. See, we've tried to get boldness by bluffing it. Bless God. You know what gave these guys boldness before the Sanhedrin? The crippled man standing there. That's why they know, well, we want more boldness. So do more healings. Now, if that's true, then the reverse of that is true, which is why the church is so timid. So they go. They get results. They get the same results. The Bible talks about the place where they prayed was shaken. Chapter 5, verse 12, and by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people. wonder how they did those. Even though the Bible doesn't identify the name of Jesus, that's the only way you can do signs and wonders, isn't it? Anybody found another way to do it? If so, please come forward. We'll pray for liars. There is no other way to do signs and wonders. So if by the hands of the apostles many signs and wonders were done or wrought among the people, that had to be in the name of Jesus. 
And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch, and of the rest dared no man join himself to them, but the people magnified them, and believers were the more added to the Lord, multitudes, both of men and women. Now that means multitudes added to the 8,120 that we know about. So we've got a, a growing concern here. Growing church. In so much, verse 15, in so much, please notice in so much is attached to the believers were the more added to the Lord multitudes, both men and women. In so much, in other words, here's why the multitudes were added. In so much that they brought forth the sick unto the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that at the least the shadow of Peter passing by might overshadow some of them. They came also a multitude out of the cities round about unto Jerusalem, bringing sick folks and them that were vexed with unclean spirits, and some of them were healed. And they were healed, every one. Everyone except one poor fellow that was left. And they were healed, every one. Now, why were they healed in such measure? Because they prayed, give us boldness by doing works, signs and wonders and miracles in the name of Jesus. Folks, here's how it works. And here's why the devil works against it so hard. You start gaining some momentum with signs and wonders and miracles in the name of Jesus. And that momentum grows and grows and grows. And because of the growing momentum, people hear about it from far and wide. They come, they receive, and realize whatever else they were believing in before ain't cutting it. And so they give their hearts to Jesus. And so multitudes, both men and women, are added to the Lord. Believers are added to the Lord more and more. And that's why the devil tries to stop the use of the name of Jesus. Now, this gets them in trouble again. You always get in trouble when you follow God. Too many times people come and complain, Oh, Pastor Mike, I don't understand. Before I started serving God, I never had this kind of trouble. Well, duh. The devil left you alone because you weren't bothering him. So this gets them in trouble. They get called in before the same council, same ones that they were threatened before. They put them in prison overnight, but the angel of the Lord, verse 19, opened the prison doors and brought them forth, saying, Go stand and speak in the temple to all the people, or to the people, all the words of this life. Please notice that phrase, all the words of this life. What do you think that means? All the words of this life. It has to include teaching and doctrine about the power in the name of Jesus, doesn't it? Or else, how are they getting the works done? If they're not teaching the power in the name of Jesus, how, are the, how is anybody gaining faith in the name of Jesus to get results in the name of Jesus? So then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. So all the words of this life means Jesus crucified, resurrected, and power in his name, doesn't it? I mean, there are a lot of other things we could attach to that too, but it has to include the basics. So they went next day, They were found in the temple instead of in the jail where the Sanhedrin put them. They drew them back in. Verse 27, and when they had set them before, when they brought them, they set them before the council and the high priest asked them, saying, did we not straightly command you that you should not teach in this name? Folks, here again is the way the devil works against the church. Have your little socials, have your little parties. Teach your little readers to digest sermons, but do not preach in the name of Jesus. Because if you preach or speak in the name of Jesus, here's what happens. City officials rise up against you. 
Folks, it's the funniest thing. I, I, don't get me started. It's the funniest thing. When we were building our building, we talked to people, tried to get a handle on what was going on. We found out that cities would give unbelieving peoples, unbelieving churches, permits right and left. But when you take a stand for healing and the power in the name of Jesus, all of a sudden, there's a sign on you. They see you come in. We struggled for years to get the same things that unbelieving churches get overnight and had to believe God except for the faith in, in, in uh, knowing what God told us and faith in operation because, uh, based on that. We wouldn't have gotten it at all. I talked to another pastor that was having some trouble and he said, yeah, the, the Methodists down the road, they got their permit in two days. I've been working on mine for 18 months. I said, what makes the difference? He said, they're not preaching Jesus. He said, why is the city going to fight against them? Folks, the Bible says those that live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. If you're not suffering persecution, you might want to check up on how you're living. If everybody's on your side, that might be an indicator. So he said, here's what the council said. Did not we straightly command you that you should not teach in this name? And behold, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Folks, let me tell you right now. Here is my intent. I intend to fill this area with the doctrine of the name of Jesus. I don't care what it costs. I don't care who's for it. I don't care who's against it. That is my intent. We want to see the results of the early church. We have to follow the pattern of the early church. They filled Jerusalem with the doctrine of the name of Jesus. Then it tells us about how they beat them. Verse 40. And to them they agreed when they had called the apostles and beaten them. They commanded them that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Notice the emphasis is on the name of Jesus. The attack is against the name of Jesus. These guys are just in the way because they preach Jesus. And they departed, meaning the apostles, from the presence of the council. And rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. That means preaching his name. Skip with me over to chapter 8. Tells us about Stephen stoning and some of that kind of stuff. Tells us in the first few verses of chapter 8, it tells us about the wave of persecution that scattered the church out of Jerusalem. Once the devil saw that he's not going to stop the preaching or teaching in the name of Jesus, he says, all right, here's what I'll do. I'll cause the government to come down on them in such a way that it scatters them. Well, what he didn't realize is that just sent missionaries out into the world. The devil was behind the first missionary effort from the church in Jerusalem. You need to know that. He didn't know what he was doing. But God always turns to what the devil does to try to stop things into something good. So they went everywhere and preached Christ. Now it says about Philip, verse 5, Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ unto them. And the people with one accord gave heed unto those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. How does he do in the miracles? The only way to do miracles is in the name of Jesus. Jesus said, He that believeth in me, the works that I do shall he do also. Those were miracle works, weren't they? So it's in the name of Jesus. 
4 tells us what miracles he did. For unclean spirits, crying with a loud voice, came out of many that were possessed with them, and many taken with palsies, and that were lame were healed. And there was great joy in the city. But there was a certain... Well, I don't want to read about him. Skip with me over to um, verse 12. But when they believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus, they were baptized, both men and women. Now, when it says they preached Christ over in... Uh, uh, what verse was it? Uh, verse 5 where it says he went down to Samaria and preached Christ unto them. What does that mean? The modern day church would answer and say, well, that means they preached that Jesus went to the cross to save you from your sins. But please notice that the Holy Ghost identifies and specifies what preaching Christ meant when Philip went down to Samaria. He preached two things. He preached things concerning the kingdom of God and he preached the name of Jesus. Now, what are things concerning the kingdom of God? What does that mean? When they believe, Philip, preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God. How are you going to tell unsaved people about the things of the kingdom of God? What are you going to do? You've got to tell them something that they don't know or else why they're going to want it. If you're going to tell people something that's going to cause them to want to come into the kingdom of God, you're going to have to tell them that God has made a better way than this natural life. Right? You're going to have to tell them something along the lines that God saw that man was separated from him without any hope of return. You might tell them about the Garden of Eden story. You might tell them about Adam and Eve falling in the Garden of Eden. And before that, they were alive unto God. Those are things concerning the kingdom of God. But eventually you're going to have to get to the point where you tell that God sent his son as a substitute and as a sacrifice to bring mankind back unto himself. And that by believing in and receiving his sacrifice, speaking of Jesus, the son of God, receiving his sacrifice as your own, as the payment or the substitute for your own sins, you can be saved. In other words, you can be translated into the kingdom of heaven. Those are all things concerning the kingdom of God. The subject of faith is concerning the kingdom of God, but you wouldn't teach on faith if you're an evangelist. You don't want to get people bogged down with the hows of things. You just want to tell them what belongs to them, right? So what would preaching Christ, meaning the things concerning the kingdom of God, be if not telling them that Jesus went to the cross and was raised from the dead? Those are things concerning the kingdom of God. It's the only thing that's going to cause anybody to get saved. But please notice that's not all Peter or Philip preached. Philip preached things concerning the kingdom of God, meaning the, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. But then it says, and he preached the name of Jesus. Now, here's the part where the modern day church has done a poor job in comparison to the early days of the church. Modern day church preaches things concerning the kingdom of God. Salvation through Jesus, sacrifice, resurrection. Of Jesus seated at the right hand of God the Father. But we have not preached the name of Jesus. Consequently, people have faith. Generally, worldwide, people have faith in getting saved because they've heard about Jesus being crucified. They've heard about him being raised from the dead. And so salvation or forgiveness of sins, what, what is identified as salvation, is readily accepted. But folks, salvation is not just forgiveness of sins. Salvation means everything that Jesus did. It means the power that's in the name of Jesus now because he left us here on the earth. So they believe Philip preaching two things, the things concerning the kingdom of God, and secondly, and the name of Jesus. Then they were baptized. 
Why would they believe Philip preaching the name of Jesus? Because they've just seen him heal the lame and the palsied in the name of Jesus. If the Bible wasn't so simple, we'd have an excuse. But what's the modern day church talk about? Things concerning the kingdom of God. Jesus went to the cross. Jesus died for your sins and God raised him from the dead. Where's the other part? Where's the part on the power in the name of Jesus? Where's the part that tells us about what the name of Jesus means today? What's the part that tells us about how to use the name of Jesus and what it's good for? Not much of that kind of teaching in the body of Christ. Go look sometimes. Google the name of Jesus and look for how many books you can find on it. There's not many. Not even theologians will tackle that one. Because they don't believe there's anything in it. It'll talk about salvation. But there's not many books out there on the name of Jesus. You know Why? Because the modern day church doesn't believe in the name of Jesus. Oh, we believe in it for salvation, forgiveness of sin. But the modern day church thinks that's as far as the name of Jesus goes. And if that's true, if that's as far as the name of Jesus goes today, then the name of Jesus has changed from when it started. It's changed from what Jesus said it would be. It's changed from what Jesus said it would do. Look with me to chapter 9. Chapter 9 talks about Paul meeting Jesus on the road to Damascus. Uh, I do want you to see this part. Notice it says in uh, uh, verse 22, this is after Paul receives his sight again and he begins doing his work for the Lord. Well, verse 20, and straightway he preached Christ in the synagogues that he is the son of God. But all that heard them were amazed and said, is not this he which destroyed them, which called on this name in Jerusalem? Notice the name. Notice the use of the name. Called on this name in Jerusalem. And came hither for that intent that he might bring them bound unto the chief priests. But Saul increased the more in strength and confounded the Jews which dwelt at Damascus. Proving that this is the very Christ. After that many days were fulfilled. The Jews took counsel to kill him. Uh, they got him out of Jerusalem. Verse tw- uh, I'm sorry. They got him out of Damascus. And he went to Jerusalem. Verse 26. Uh, and when Saul was come to Jerusalem, he essayed, that means he attempted, join himself to the disciples, but they were all afraid of him and believed not that he was a disciple. They thought that he was a spy, I guess. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared unto them how he had seen the Lord in the way and how that he had spoken to him and how that he had preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus. Now notice how the Bible, the Holy Spirit, speaks and identifies these different um, um, works that Paul did verse 20 it says he preached Christ in the synagogue that he's the son of God verse 27 says he preached boldly at Damascus in the name of Jesus so preaching Christ is preaching in the name of Jesus now folks don't get religious on me with the term or the phrase is used preaching Christ in the early days of the church meant preaching the power in the name of Jesus to save and to heal and to deliver now preaching in the name of Jesus could mean anything Because we don't use the name of Jesus in the specific way that Jesus intended for us to use his name. The modern day church will preach a Reader's Digest sermon and say they're preaching in the name of Jesus. 
But they're not preaching anything about Jesus. They're not preaching anything about the power in the name of Jesus. They're not preaching anything that will make a difference in somebody's life. They're just talking about feel-good stuff. But, of course, we're serving the Lord. Really? That doesn't seem to be the attitude of the early church. Now, let's... uh, um, Well, verse 28. And he was with them coming in and going out of Jerusalem. And he spake boldly in the name of the Lord Jesus. We could say he spoke boldly about the name of the Lord Jesus. It would mean exactly the same thing. And disputed against the Grecians, but they went about to slay him. Now skip with me over to verse 32. Let's find out what Peter's doing about this time. And it came to pass, as Peter passed throughout all the quarters, he came down also to the saints which dwelt at Lydda. And there he found a certain man named Aeneas, which had kept his bed eight years and was sick of the palsy. And Jesus said unto him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ maketh thee whole. Arise and make thy bed. And he arose immediately. And all they that dwelt at Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. Now I want you to notice something. Peter is the same guy that said in chapter 3 to the man at the beautiful gate of the temple, in the name of Jesus, rise and walk. Why didn't he use the same formula here? Well, there's two reasons. Number one, it's not a formula. But number two, and I think the more important thing is, this guy's a believer. The cripple at the beautiful gate was not. The cripple at the beautiful gate was healed out in public, and as a result, 5,000 people got saved because of that one miracle that took place. Here it says, Peter went down to the, uh, where is it? He came down also to the saints, which dwelt at Lydda, the city of Lydda. He's dealing now with a Christian. And notice what he says to this Christian. This person that already believes in the name of Jesus, already is baptized into the name of Jesus, he's saved, he's born again. Peter says, Jesus Christ maketh thee whole. What does Peter do? How does Peter use the name of Jesus? We know it's the name of Jesus in operation because the guy is healed. The crippled man is healed. Can't be healed outside of the name of Jesus. There is no other name under heaven whereby men may be saved. That word saved is the word sozo. Um, uh, What's his name? Uh, uh, Schofield. Dr. Schofield. One of the greatest denominational preachers of the modern era. Dr. Schofield says in his Bible, a footnote of his Bible about this word sozo in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16 and 17. He says that salvation is an all-inclusive term. This is a Baptist preacher. Baptist scholar. He said salvation is an all-inclusive term which in, uh, includes the concepts of rescue, deliverance, safety, soundness, and healing. So we could say when, Paul said, or when Peter preached and said there is no other name under heaven where men might be saved, he could say we could in, uh, in, uh, interject or substitute any of those words. There's no other name under heaven whereby men may be delivered. There's no other name under heaven whereby men may be made safe. There's no other name under heaven where men may be rescued. There's no other name. Rescue could be anything. Rescue from spiritual death and sin along with other things as well. There's no other name under heaven where men may be made sound. There's no other name under heaven where men may be healed. So when Peter comes to this Christian that's crippled, Peter says, Jesus Christ maketh thee whole. Now what is he doing? Notice he does not say, in the name of Jesus, rise and walk. What is he doing? He speaks to a believer about the finished work of Jesus. He says to the believer, Jesus already paid for your, for your well-being, for your healing. So arise and walk. Now notice what he does not do. 
He does not say, now Aeneas, God uses me in special faith. So happy days are here for you. He does not say I have a special anointing or a special message from God. He says something that, if you'll forgive me for saying it this way, I don't mean it in a disrespectful way, but he says something that is very nondescript and factual. He said, Jesus Christ made you whole. The implication is, there's part of what Jesus did for you that you're not taking advantage of. So get up. Notice what Peter does not say. Peter does not say, now if you will only believe, why? Because he's a believer. See, we've made faith this hard, hard thing. If only you have enough faith. Folks, let me tell you something. Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, Jesus said, Come unto me, all you that are burdened and heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart, and you shall find rest unto your souls. Now, verse 30 says this, For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. If you're doing something that's hard to do, you're hooked up with the wrong thing. If faith is a hard thing for you, you're not doing it right. Faith is the most common and easy and and natural thing to a believer that there could possibly be. Faith should, exercising faith should be no more difficult for you than breathing is to stay alive. Faith is a natural thing for a believer. Now, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. So there is some effort. There is some some exercise of the will on our part to hear the word. But it takes no effort or no, no, uh, well, it takes no effort on the part of the individual once they hear the word to, to receive faith. None whatsoever. Now, think about it. You've been breathing this whole time I've been talking this morning. And not a one of you have thought, inhale, exhale. Inhale, exhale. Yet that's exactly what a lot of people do when it comes to the operation of faith. I believe I receive, I believe I receive, I believe I receive, I believe I receive. It's not the way it's supposed to be. Jesus said the stuff that he hooks up with you on is easy, is light. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. That seems to be what the same attitude that Peter's taken with Aeneas. He said, hey, Aeneas, Jesus made you whole. Now, we don't know anything about these believers up to this point. We don't know how they're believers. We don't know if they were part of the group in Jerusalem that got uh, run out of town in chapter 8. We don't know if these are people that got saved because other people were run out of Jerusalem in chapter 8. We don't know how they came to be believers. We certainly don't have any record of anybody being there until Peter goes. So they either got saved in Jerusalem or somewhere else in the near uh, vicinity of Jerusalem. And then left to go back to the cities of Lydda and Sharon. Or else they got saved because somebody came from Jerusalem. Because that's where everything started. So whatever the case is. This is Peter's first visit there. That we have record of. Seems to me that if this wasn't the first record. We'd have some kind of indication of that too. But Peter goes down there and says very simply. Hey Aeneas. Jesus made you whole. Rise and walk. And he rose and walked. And it says that all the people, the unsaved, meaning the unsaved, in Lydda, the cities of Lydda and Sharon, twin cities, all they came and turned or saw him, saw the crippled man healed, and turned to the Lord. 
In other words, now the same kind of stuff that's happening in Jerusalem, starting with chapter 3 of Acts, is starting to happen in other cities. Why? Because of the finished work of Jesus. Because of the finished work of Jesus. Let's read down another few verses. Verse 36. Now there was at Joppa a certain disciple named Tabitha, which is by interpretation called Dorcas. This woman was full of good works and alms deeds. Now she's a disciple, so that means she's saved. And it came to pass in those days that she was sick and died, and when they had washed, whom when they had washed, they laid her in an upper chamber. And forasmuch as Lydda was nigh unto Joppa, and the disciples had heard that Peter was there, they sent unto him two men, desiring that he would not delay to come to them. Then Peter arose and went with them, and when he was come, they brought him into the upper chamber, and with all the widows stood by him weeping and showing the coats and garments which Dorcas made while she was with them. But Peter put them all forth and kneeled down and prayed. What's he praying? What's he praying? If it was you, what would you be praying? Well, don't answer that. If it was you, you would have put everybody out. You'd have been comforted everybody saying, oh, she was a great woman. Peter puts everybody out. He doesn't want any interference from anybody. And he kneels down to pray. What is he praying about? The only thing that I can conclude is he's praying, Father, is there anything I can do here? I wonder if he's remembering back during that time of prayer. I wonder if he's remembering that last night with Jesus where Jesus said, He that believeth on me, the works that I do, shall he do also. I wonder if Jesus is remembering, you know, I saw him raise two people. He raised Lazarus from the dead. I saw Lazarus come floating out of that tomb. You do realize that, don't you? When Jesus commanded him to roll away the stone from Lazarus' tomb, John chapter 11. And he said, Lazarus, come forth. It says, Lazarus came forth bound hand and foot. If he's bound hand and foot, how's he coming forth? They mummified people back then. They learned from the Egyptians. If he's bound hand and foot, that means all these ointments and spices and everything have been put on him after three days because he's, he's there on the fourth day to harden this stuff up in the arid climate of the Middle East. Which means he's not walking out. He's not some mummy walking out when Jesus says Lazarus come forth the power of God drew him out and people may be remembering that young child or young young person that was in the middle of their funeral that Jesus interrupted the whole thing touched the coffin and said arise and, and delivered the boy back to her father to her mother I wonder what Peter's praying whatever it is notice what he what he does what action he takes Peter simply says Turned to the body and said, Tabitha, arise. And she opened her eyes and when she saw Peter, she sat up. Why did Peter not say, in the name of Jesus? And of course, if you're going to do that, you want an audience. We don't see him following a formula, do we? You know what we do see? We see him operating according to the life of God that's in every believer. See, when the Bible talks about you being in Christ, 130 times in the New Testament it says in one way or another that you are in Christ. When it says you are in Christ, it really means you are in Christ. That means the power of the name of Jesus is yours 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Available for you to use it. Well then, Pastor Mike, why didn't the church do more stuff? Because it hadn't been preached. 
It hadn't been preached. And folks, I can tell you right now, there is no greater resistance to anything than preaching healing or something related to the power in the name of Jesus. None. People will say you're crazy. The devil will attack you. There's all kinds of things that take place when you preach the name of Jesus. But either the Bible's true or it's not. Either the name of Jesus is what Jesus said it is. It either will do what Jesus said it will do. Or it's not. It's a fake. It's a lie. And if it's a lie, then the rest of it's a lie too. Has the name of Jesus lost any power? It used to be the only name under heaven whereby men may be saved. Rescued, healed, delivered, made safe and sound. What is it now? Is it just the, the power to forgive sins? I'll say it again. If that's the case, then heaven, God, and Jesus have diminished. And the devil has gotten stronger. No, bless God, the name of Jesus is the same thing it always was. Folks, I've got news for you. Jesus Christ made you whole. Price has already been paid. The work has already been finished. You don't need somebody to say some special, powerful, in the name of Jesus phrase over you. Because you are already in the name of Jesus. I'm going to conclude with one last scripture over in Colossians chapter 3. I love this. This is something the Lord spoke to me the other morning just as I was waking up. I've always known it was there, but anytime the Lord reminds you of a scripture, it takes on special significance. And uh, for me, it just becomes more precious. Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. It says, if you then be risen with Christ, if means since, because he's writing to people that are born again. Since you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. What things above is he talking about? See, we can say generally he's saying, seek those things that are of heaven. Well, what does that mean? I, I don't mean this in the wrong way, but I couldn't care less while I'm here on the earth that there are streets of gold in heaven. I wouldn't mind finding a street of gold down here. But what, what is he talking about? Is he talking about just get your eyes on heaven? Well, all right, I'm glad to go to heaven someday, but I've still got a work to finish here. So I'm not going to get so heavenly focused or, or minded that I forget to do the work down here or get distracted. Is that what he means? It can't be what he means. Where he says, seek those things which are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. What does it mean that Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father? That's a place of authority. So I interpret that. You interpret it any way you want to. But I interpret that to be since you be risen with Christ. Since I am risen with Christ, I am to keep my focus on those things, my focus, my desire, my, my, my aim, on those things which are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. In other words, I'm going to focus on the authority that I have because Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. And the only way that authority is mine is through the name of Jesus. So for me, since I'm risen with Christ, I'm seeking the authority in the name of Jesus. I'm seeking to understand the power. That's what Paul said. He said, I, want, I count everything as nothing, but that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. That was Paul's focus. 
Paul prayed that we would understand, among two other things, that we would know what is the exceeding greatness of his power that works in us as believers. What power works in us as believers? The power in the name of Jesus. Why? Because we're in Christ. See, I think too many people, too many Christians have the idea that we're walking around trying to get God on the, to come on the scene. When the Bible says God's in you. I'm coming to understand more and more. I wish I was there already, but I'm not. But I'm coming to understand more and more that every time I come on the scene, God's there. Because I brought him with me. That's what Jesus said. You and me and us and the Father. That's the same thing Jesus said about himself. He that's seen me has seen the Father. Why? Because the life of the Father was in him. Well, guess what? The life of God is in you too. Now, we're not accustomed to thinking like that. We're used to thinking in what we have identified as a more humble way or attitude. Well, we're nothing. Really? Jesus died for nothing? He didn't think you were nothing. If he thought you were nothing, he wouldn't have died for you. Jesus didn't die for the goats and the calves or the animals on the earth. Why? Because in God's estimation, they're nothing. They're not in his class of being. That's not the case for you. So for me, this verse means since I've been risen with Christ, I'm going to focus on what belongs to me because Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. Why? Because he's given me a work to do here. Set your affection, verse 2, on things above, not on things of the earth. Well, that's good advice. Don't love the world. Folks, you don't use things that you love and you don't love things that you use. I'll use anything of the world because I don't love it. But I won't use people because I do love them. I won't use God for my own purposes. That's the distinction. When the Bible talks about you can't serve God in mammon, that's the distinction. I love God, but I'll use everything that the earth has to offer. Set your affection on things above, not on things of the earth. Why? Verse 3, for you are dead. Literally, this says, for you died. See, I'm not dead. But I did die. But because I did die, through the sacrifice of Jesus, I was made spiritually alive. Can you see that? For you died, and your life is hid with Christ in God. Ryan, is that my cue to quit? (laughs) Beth sent you up here, didn't you? (laughs) For your life, verse 3, for you died and your life is hid with Christ in God. You know where Paul said it's no longer I that lives, but Christ lives in me? He's not just saying something poetic or something that sounds pretty. He really means what he's saying. It's Christ that lives in me. In other words, he's saying the same thing Jesus said. He that's seen me has seen the Father. Why? Because of the life of God. Not because of me, not because of him, not because of anything that we do on our own, but because Jesus died for us and now he indwells us. Well, we start thinking like that. We won't start looking for the power of God to come from some other place. We'll start recognizing, wait a minute. I am a believer in the name of Jesus. So the same works that Jesus does, I do them too. That's really what he meant by that. Are you out there? 
Thank God for the name of Jesus. Jesus Christ made you whole. Jesus Christ delivered you. Jesus Christ paid the price for your poverty so that you might be rich. Jesus Christ made all the power of God available to you in every situation that you encounter in life. So arise and take the power. If it's physical, then arise and walk. If it's spiritual, then take hold of it by faith. Whatever it is, the power of God is there. You are designed, you are made to use the name of Jesus. The new creation is a creation of mankind intended to use the name of Jesus to glorify God the Father. And God's glorified when you're blessed. God's glorified when you walk in victory. God's glorified when you're healed. God's glorified when you pay your bills instead of being under the burden of debt. God's glorified when you win. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the truth of the word of God. Oh, Father, that our eyes would be opened to know that the name of Jesus belongs to us, that we are in Christ. And because we are in Christ, there is no situation that we will ever encounter that is too great for you or for us because you're in us. Thank you, Father, that Jesus has made us whole. Spirit, soul, and body. In that name, we claim victory. In that name, we claim healing. In that name, we claim the blessings of God. In that name. In that name. Thank you, Father, that our life is hid with Christ in God. Once and for all. We're not our own. Our bodies are not our own. They belong to you. Oh, thank you, Father. Father, we ask that you would give us doors of utterance. That we we may fill this area with the teaching of the name of Jesus. We pray that you would give us boldness to speak your word by stretching forth your hand to heal. And that signs and wonders would be done in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, for the name. The name that heals. When Jesus was here on the earth, Father, the word of God says that he healed the blind. Caused them to see. He made the dumb to speak. Made the lame to walk. And the maimed to be whole. And that it glorified the God of Israel. Thank you, Father. That we make the blind to see, the dumb to speak, the lame to walk, and the maimed to be made whole. That we may glorify you in his name. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. We love you, Father. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for opening our eyes. To what belongs to us. Amen.